We're going to try to do some more technology. All right. So um, many of you know that uh, my, my first career, the, I, I spent the bulk of my life um, after college uh, as a computer programmer. And um, I spent about 20 years as a computer programmer, and um, I'm now in my 12th year as a pastor, so um, I'm slowly catching up with that first phase of my career. But I, I still tend to see the world as a computer programmer, um, or as we would say, a software developer. Um, now, for those of you who are not familiar with software development, it is a, uh, um, uh, or it was in the time, you know, what I'm saying is out of date, so, uh, you know, this was once true. But... Um, but it, it, back in the olden days, there were three there were three tiers of software developers. At the bottom, there was the the tier of the software tester, and um, uh, I'm not sure that 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 tier even exists anymore because um, uh, because we get so many updates. Back in the olden days, you had to test your software because if you didn't test it, then it would be a whole new version before you were able to fix anything. And so so. Um, I think testing maybe is less important than it used to be. You've seen these messages before, um, working on updates. Um, this might take several minutes. We've all seen updates. Uh, we've all seen messages like that. Um, I'm racing over to get a prop. Um, uh, we've all seen these sort of messages before. So I'm not sure if testers still exist, but um, there were two tiers above testers, um, and they were developers and maintainers. Developers were like the top dogs. They got to write the code, and maintainers maintain the code. And the reason that that was not as much fun as being a developer is something we call bit rot. Now, if you're familiar with software, you realize bits don't actually rot. I mean, I suppose there's a tiny amount of, you know, cosmic rays can affect a disk drive or something. But realistically, bits don't rot. But the problem is circumstances change. What's always happening is the world is changing, and perfectly good software quits working. Some of you are old enough to remember the Y2K problem. It's when you find out how many digits your odometer should have because sometimes it doesn't have quite enough, and when it rolls over, you're in trouble. Um, so what, what you do when that happens is you hire a bunch of retired software maintainers, and you pay them astronomical fees to go back and fix the code that they wrote that was perfectly good in the 1960s and 1970s, and they just had no conception that anybody would be still running it 30 years later. So software maintenance is an important job. Uh, the other reason is because the world just changes. You know, this is a, this is a computer disk drive. They used to be the size of a washing machine, and uh, now they're this size, except sometimes they're this size, and sometimes they're the size of a refrigerator, but it's somewhere in the cloud in North Carolina or something. We have no idea where that disk drive is. So disk drives... Are, are all over the place. And if you wrote software for this kind of disk drive, well, who knows if it will work in the cloud, right? So that's why maintenance is important. And that raises the question about creation. Who is in charge of maintenance? We talked last week about creation. But there's a question. What about maintenance? You know this from, from your own life. If you pay somebody to build you a deck... You're not going to expect them to come back three years later and give it a fresh coat of stain, right? That doesn't come bundled with creation. Maintenance is a separate thing. So um, if we're going to talk about creation, we have to talk about maintenance, but it's not in the creed that we saw um, when we looked at when we began looking at our, our um, uh, confession. So we've been we've been in a, a series of messages talking about 
the Apostles' Creed. Uh, the Apostles' Creed was an early document written um, between the 2nd and 8th century in the church. And what it does is it attempts to, to um, formulate what it is Christians believe about God. There's two ways you can answer that question. One of them is you get out your Bible and read what the Bible says about God. But there's another way, which is to read in community, to say we believe the Holy Spirit will speak to us most clearly when we read in community. So uh, confessional documents are when... The church assembles um, to read in community and say, what do we believe about our faith? What does our faith tell us about God? What does it tell us about Jesus? What does it tell us about the Holy Spirit? So the Apostles' Creed is an early document in the church that was an attempt to, to formulate what it was the church believed about God. And um, we are looking at just the first article, the article that talks about God the Father. And it says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And so we, we've looked at Father, and last, uh, last time we looked at um, Creator, but the question we're going to be looking at today is the word that's not in that creed, the missing word, which is maintainer. Now, if we had talked to uh, people in the um, ancient world, they would have said, well, that's assumed. You can just assume that if somebody creates the universe, they're also going to maintain the universe. But... By the late Middle Ages and early, um, early modern period, that was actually beginning to be doubted. That, that distinction had become more clear. People began to wonder, is that true? And the reason is because the world was changing. The world was changing in a way that it had never changed before. The new lands were being discovered. Uh, people were going out in those ships and they were seeing the Leviathans, um, uh, sporting in the, in, in the water. And so they were discovering new lands in the old world and they discovered the whole, um, uh, Western hemisphere. So it was a new world for a lot of people. They invented the printing press, and suddenly there's there's books all over the place, books filled with strange ideas. The Byzantine Empire uh, was was conquered by the Turks, and uh, what was then Byzantium became Turkey. Um, so the world was changing. Was God still in charge of this dynamic and and changing world? Who is in charge? We understand that God created the world. But does God maintain it? And this idea went on to be, um, this idea, the question of does God maintain the world, particularly a world that is changing faster than ever, uh, went on to be developed over the next couple of centuries, and it kind of reached its peak in the 1700s um, during the Enlightenment with a, a, a thought idea called a deism, which is the idea that, yes, God created the world, but no, it did not come with a maintenance contract. And so you had to pay extra for that, and we forgot to pay. And so it's really up to us to take care of the world. And that led to a lot of political uh, revolutions and so forth. People said, look, it's up to us to make the world a better place because God won't. God is far off. God is on some distant cloud doing whatever gods do. And this world is really pretty much up to us to take care of. So people like Thomas Paine and other intellectuals of the late 1700s and early 1800s were affected by a mind, I mean, uh, were, were um, uh, believers, they, they adherents of, uh, of a conceptual framework called deism. The idea that there is a God, but he's pretty much done, and we don't have to do anything with him anymore. In response to that, the church formulated a number of creeds and confessions um, in the 16th and 17th centuries. We talked before about how once you've got the Apostles' Creed, you can't go back and fix it. Just practically, you can't call back all the bishops from the 300s 
and say, hey, we want to, we want to tinker with this. It's just practically impossible. What you can do is you can write a new creed or a new confession. And so they did that a lot during the time of the Reformation. One of them, um, one of those confessions that, that uh, is in our book of confessions, the Presbyterian book of confession, is called the Heidelberg Catechism. And it asks the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer goes like this. I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And this is question one of the Heidelberg Catechism. It was saying, we have had this massive oversight. The people who put together the Apostles' Creed, it's not wrong, but just, wow, there's this huge glaring gap in the Apostles' Creed, and we need to correct that. So question one of the Heidelberg Catechism is, God is still in charge. Even though the world is changing, even though everything has been turned over, God is still maintaining the world. The world does come with a maintenance contract, or to use the church word, providence. Uh, I know there's people who work at Providence Hospital. That's why providence is such a big a big word for Christians. It is the idea that God is maintaining the world. God didn't just build it. God continues to maintain the world. And the church word for that is providence. So what I want to do is I want to look at uh, the passages we just heard and um, and then discuss some of their implications. So uh, briefly, they're, they're both pretty long passages. Um, the, the story of uh, Joseph, this is Joseph the patriarch. You know, if you're familiar with uh, Joseph and Mary from the Christmas story, this is a different Joseph. Joseph uh, the patriarch, um, he was one of the uh, uh, originators of the, the Israelite people. And um, he had 11 brothers, and they did him nasty. They were going to kill him, and then they changed their mind. They said, there's no profit in killing somebody. Let's sell him into slavery. So they sold him into um, slavery. He went down to Egypt, and uh, things got worse for him because he went from being a slave to being a prisoner in a dungeon in, in um, Egypt. But over about 17 years, 17 very brief years, I'm sure, um, he was able actually to be lifted out of his, out of his um, uh, imprisonment, and he was actually elevated to the right hand of Pharaoh. He became the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. Meanwhile, back home, his brothers um, found out the circumstances changed where his brothers were. There was, a, there was a famine, and they said, we need to go to Egypt to get food. And they had, by this time, completely forgotten about Joseph. Joseph has been dead 14 years, or maybe it took a while because he was a slave, but we can pretty well assume that, that Joseph is gone by now. But they get to Egypt, and as God's providence would dictate, guess who they have to buy their grain from? Well, it's Joseph. So they they are shocked that Joseph treats them well. Joseph um, says, no, bring the whole family. Come on down. I'll take care of you all. And so they do. But then they start thinking, well, maybe it's because because dad's still alive, that he's only taking care of us until dad dad dies, and then it'll be like the end of The Godfather Part Two, and and... There'll be, you know, liquidations all over the place. And so they're saying, we got to get a message to, to, to Joseph and say, even though dad is now gone, please don't kill us. And Joseph breaks down when he gets their message and he cries. His brothers come in and they throw himself before Joseph. He says, look, we're your slaves. And he says, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He says, you know, was it fun down in the dungeon? No. Was it fun being a slave of Potiphar? No. But I can see now 
with hindsight, I can see that God's hand was in this. His fingerprints are all over my life. So he said, you intended it for ill, but God intended it for good. So don't be afraid. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. The Apostle Paul says something very similar, um, not just for our own lives, but for the, the world, the cosmos as a whole. He says God causes everything to work together for good, uh, for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. And um, this is something, unfortunately, you usually hear this at a bad time. You're in the hospital um, and somebody comes in and says, hey, you know, God causes everything to work for good. Um, uh, so it may not always be the right time to say it, but it is something that Christians have believed really since uh, the, the foundation of the faith. So we believe these things, and um, Jesus talked about the ravens. He said, God takes care of the ravens. God has created a world where even ravens, even nasty little scavenger animals like ravens, get fed because God loves this world. So that's the idea of providence. Um, we could go through all of Scripture. We find it all through the Scriptures. But what I want to do is I want to look at three implications of the idea of providence. The first one is that God upholds the world. That the world, in fact, you know, the, like the song goes, he's got the whole world in his hand. And when we say he holds the world in his hands, we don't just mean this planet. We mean the entire universe, all of time and space, exists because God wills it. And the implication of that is that if God quits willing it, it quits existing. The universe does not have any intrinsic um, existence apart from God. And maybe that sounds a little a little nervous-making that, that you think, well, wait, what if God forgets? What if God, um, you know, has a bad day? Uh, and that's that's basically the 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 idea of God upholding the universe. The universe has to be upheld by something. And what Christians believe is there's nothing more trustworthy for the universe to be upheld by than God. God will never have a bad day. If God kind of set the universe down on a table and walked away, that table would not be as trustworthy as God. That ultimately the most trustworthy thing that we can imagine is in fact in charge of the universe, that God upholds the universe. So we see the psalmist talk about things like we heard in Psalm 104, you make springs of water uh, pour into ravines, um, you send rain in the mountains, you cause grass to grow. Animals depend on you uh, to give them the food as they need it. Jesus himself said that that um, when when people said, you're, you're healing on the Sabbath, God rested on the Sabbath, Jesus said, no, my Father is always working, and so am I. God did not rest, and he certainly didn't go off and you know go on vacation or something. God is always at work upholding the cosmos. And the idea there again is, is something has to hold it all up. And the most trustworthy thing, the rock bottom of our faith, is that there is a good God who will not forget, who will not make a mistake, who will not wake up one morning and say, oops, I forgot about the whole cosmos. My bad. We believe in a God who is trustworthy. There's another, there's another implication, which is that God concurs. God concurs with what takes place in the cosmos, that everything that happens in the world, God is okay with. It doesn't necessarily mean that God likes some things, you know, hurricanes. 
Maybe God doesn't like, but on balance, God has considered the alternatives. God has looked at his plans for the world and says, I will permit this to happen. And maybe that makes us a little nervous because it's not always, um, it's not always good that happens, right? But Jesus tells us, um, not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. He says, God knows what's going on. And the good thing about that, actually, let me see. Oh, the psalmist says, I cry out to the Lord. Yes, I shout. Oh, that God would listen to me. When I was in deep trouble, I searched for the Lord. Oh, Lord, how long will you be angry with us? Forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. He says, whatever's going on in your life, whether it's a hurricane or whether you've been imprisoned unjustly, he says, he says, God knows it. And the good thing about that, again, it's not that the thing itself is good, but what's good about it is it means there's one-stop shopping. It means God says, I'm in charge. You will never bring a prayer to, to God, and he will say, sorry, next window. Right? God will never direct you to somebody else and say, no, it's their fault. He will say, no, bring your cares to me. Lay your cares on me. If you're a prisoner, bring your groans to me. And I have big shoulders. You can bring them to me. And more than that, there's a promise. There's an implicit promise that someday we will have the same view of the circumstances that God does. And we will understand why God permitted it. Right? We may not, we may not agree. Uh, God, God doesn't necessarily agree that what happened is a good thing. But we will understand how God used it to work together for good. And that brings us to the last implication, which is that God governs. Um, the psalmist says, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. I trust in God, so why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? What can mere mortals do to me? And famously, the Lord is my shepherd. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. The idea that God governs, that God is achieving his purposes, that whatever whatever God is doing, whatever the reason that God allows that hurricane or that cancer diagnosis, whatever whatever the reason is, we may not understand it now, but we can be sure that God is capable of using those events to bring about his purposes. But more than that, God is not some celestial steamroller who is just rolling over us to make sure that his purposes are carried out, but that God governs at the individual level, that God can provide grace to you in your own life as he carries out his purposes. So, yes, we may not like the fact that there's a hurricane. We may not like the fact that there's a diagnosis of cancer. We don't have to like it. But we know that God concurs with it. And more than that, we know that God governs it. And that along the way, God will be at work. So it is not simply some steamroller that is that is um, some kind of cosmic uh, urban renewal program that's bulldozing houses and knocking over lives. God will provide grace along the way because God governs, God concurs, and God upholds. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this world. It is uh, the time of year when we are uh, prone to look outside and say it's pretty, it's pretty after all. Um, but, um, but depending on the circumstances of our lives, depending on what's going on in our families and our work and our schools, it may not be pretty there. So, Lord, 
we are grateful for the knowledge that you are not a God who is absent. You did not simply make the world wind it up like a clock and go off to do other things, that you are a God who is actively involved in our world to uphold it, to keep it running, that the laws of physics continue to operate not because they have some intrinsic power of their own, but because you uphold them. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who concurs with what happens, that you would limit anything that would be outside of your plan, that you could not somehow make work together for good. And most of all, God, we thank you you are a God who governs the world, that you, that you are bringing about your good purposes for creation, to restore it and to reconcile all people to yourself. And that along the way, Lord, you shower grace on the children you love. Help us to remember, Lord, in all circumstances, you are a God of providence. We pray this to Christ our Lord. Amen.